happening. Yeah. And so I, I, I mean, I was, I was doing really well, making a lot of money corporate world, but that's kind of when I decided, you know, listen, I, I need to start my own company and create my own culture because I don't want to be part of a culture that I don't believe in. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the thing is culture is paramount. That, that is, that's what we had in special operations. That's what makes us thrive. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, that's what makes us successful. And to your point about trust, I think that that is the one thing that unfortunately inevitably leads to our failure as entrepreneurs is that we have too much trust. And I've seen that a lot in, you know, especially the special operations community, guys getting out and trusting people who they shouldn't have trusted. And now next thing you know, their businesses are falling apart. I mean, I just had this conversation three days ago with a buddy of mine. He's got a company in Virginia that he had started a business and he had he and his partner had actually effectively grown that business to what it was. And the two investors basically created another shell company and removed them from it and took all the assets. And so I had, and I said, you know, I finally told him, I said, listen, don't walk away from this. I said, you're getting screwed over. Uh, I said, what they're doing is illegal um, and you need to go get legal counsel because what they're, what, what they're doing is they shouldn't be doing this to you. And so he finally won in court. But at the end of the day, I, that I've heard that story hundreds of times. Yeah. Hundreds of times. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook, the podcast where we welcome business leaders, CEOs, and industry experts to discuss the rise to the top, building wealth, and real estate insights. Here's your host, Jeremy Spann. Welcome to Winning Strategies Playbook. For more information on this show, go to our website, myexperiencedrealtor.com. That's experience with an ED for my fellow Marines there, because i got a Navy SEAL here today, and they always make fun of us because we can't spell. So myexperiencedrealtor.com, click on podcast, scroll down to this episode, other episodes where you can download all the different platforms, YouTube, you name it. And of course, if you're looking to buy and sell real estate anywhere on the planet, go to the homepage, click find a trusted professional, and we'll make sure that you don't get somebody who's a moron to be able to help you transition through buying and selling real estate. But we're not here to talk about real estate today. We are here with my friend, Alex Coons. How are you doing, friend? Hey, great, Jeremy. Good, good to see you, man. Man, I appreciate you coming on the show. So I start all these off with a horrible joke. My father-in-law said I got to do a joke when I decided to do the show a year and a half ago. <laughs> and so I intentionally do bad jokes, but you and I come from environments of a lot of rivalry type stuff. So I, 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 I totally made this one up. A Green Beret, a Navy SEAL, and a recon Marine walk into a bar. The Green Beret walks up to the bar and says, you know, and everybody's there with their girls. And uh, he goes, I'll, I'll tell I bet you I can do 10 shots. And he slams 10 shots. The Navy SEAL looks at him and says, that's nothing. I'll do 20 shots. And then they turn around and they go, hey, where'd the recon Marine go? And the bartender said, hey, he left with girlfriends. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> so for the audience, I don't know if you remember this, is you and I actually connected back in 2014. You had another company, Tierra or, or Terraform. Terraform. Yeah. And, and I don't remember. I think you and I, uh, because, you know, military, we had some common connections on LinkedIn. Mm -hmm. And that's how we got originally connected was on LinkedIn. Yep. And then uh, the company that I was previously a partner in that ended up being a horrible company, by the way. There was something that we were, they, they had asked me, hey, do you have any contacts over 
or anybody, because the CEO of that one was a retired Marine Corps colonel. He goes, hey, do you got anybody over in, uh, that does anything in Africa? And I was like, hey, just I've, I've, I've got somebody I'm connected with that I think goes over there back and forth because y'all were doing some stuff yeah. over there back then. And I remember you and I t- uh, talked on the phone. And then since then, over the last seven, eight years, we've just kind of barely missed each other in little passings of little things, yeah. I think. Yeah. And then, uh, so I appreciate you coming on the show today. Yeah. Yeah. So, so you're not originally from Texas, even though you got here as fast as you could. Mm-hmm. Right. So where are you originally from? I'm actually originally from Arizona, Tucson. So my father was a flight surgeon. So he was at that time working out of Davis Mothin Air Force Base. And then he transferred out to Brawley, California to Naval Air Facility El Centro. Well, actually, sorry, NAF El Centro and he's working at Brawley Hospital. So when I, about two months before I enlisted in the Navy, I went out there and lived with him for a couple of weeks before then I went to um, boot camp and A school and then over to Bud's. Okay. So what year did you go to the Navy? Nine, 19, end of 1990. Okay. Yeah. Because you and I were in about the same time because I went yeah. in 91. Yeah. And then uh, what year did you go to Bud's? Uh, so Bud's would have been 92, end of 91, 92. Okay. Yeah. So we were both in Coronado around the same time. Yeah, I think so. so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Cause and I checked into Team 1 end of 92, 93. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, because you got to go through BUDS, and then at that time we went through uh, – you, you, once you graduate from BUDS, I guess you do a brief check-in at the team, but then you go out to airborne school. Yeah. So, and, then, and then you kind of come back and you class up, go through SEAL tactical training, which is more advanced training, and then you platoon up and then start your workups. You know, it's kind of funny. You find you find doing the same thing I do is because we're not young chickens anymore. Yeah. It's like somebody will ask something and you're just you're like, man, when what when did I go do that? Yeah. Right. Or like I had a buddy of mine a couple months ago. We were we were talking about something about Marine Corps boot camp, and I was like, yeah, I was like that thing was like eight weeks, right? And he was like, no, it was a lot longer than that. And I was like, man, I don't even remember, dude. That was so long ago that I it's, I can bear I can barely, I can barely remember Frag, fragments of time. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe a couple of TBIs and everything else. Can't remember anything. <laughs> so, so when you when you went in the Navy, did you know you wanted to go to Buds? Yeah, I actually did. It's um, kind of an interesting story. I I was actually going to follow in my father's footsteps and be a medical doctor, and so I went in. I graduated high school a year early, enrolled in the U of A. And I've told the story a few times, but it's kind of still nonetheless it's interesting. So I originally in, enrolled in med school at the University of Arizona. And at that time, my father said, hey, you know, I want to sit down and have a you know a talk with you. And this was when medicine, you know, a lot of private practices were around when they did proper diagnosis and really wanted to treat patients. But then everything was going to managed healthcare. And my father was a, you know, experienced that over time, the conversion of private practices into managed healthcare. And and I remember you just said, hey, listen, sit, sit down. And he said, you know, are you sure this is what you want to do? And I said, yeah, you know, I've kind of seen what uh, medicine's like through your practice and stuff. And he said, well, you know, I want to tell you that this is not what the future of medicine is going to be. He said, you know, I've I've been fortunate in that I've been able to actually have a private practice and be able to really properly spend the time with patients and diagnose them and actually provide real treatment. And he said, but that's not what the future is going to be. 
the future is really going to be about treatment protocols, not about diagnosis. Hey, try this, try that. And, and he essentially said, I'm telling you this because I don't think you're going to be happy with that career. And so I struggled, uh, it, you know, cause I had set my mind. That's something I really wanted to do. Cause I'm, I, I, I tend to have a very strong passion for everything I wanted to do. My wife thinks it's, uh, somewhat of a curse to some extent <laughs> that I'm a little bit too focused, <laughs> but I believe that you have to be focused and you truly have to have passion in what you do. So when I kind of lost that passion, I had no idea what I wanted to do. And so I was kind of changing degrees. You know, I heard about like software and coding. And so I said, you know, maybe that's kind of interesting. So I, I, I enrolled in the U of A's computer science program for about a year and then decided that's not what I wanted to do. And so I went into chemical engineering. And then after I learned about the job itself and I said, well, I don't really want to just be sitting at a desk all day long. And it was uh, one day, my second year at the U of A, I was walking through the main campus and <clears throat> I was kind of just not really paying attention, just walking down the sidewalk toward the um, uh, football stadium. And I remember I almost ran into this guy. And, you know, the first thing I could see you know, where the polished shoes and brown khakis, right? And I just, and, you know, and the individual said, hey, you know, you've got some time to talk. And so, you know, of course, I, I looked up. I wasn't really giving him any credence at that point because I was just kind of in my own little world trying to go somewhere. And uh, so I looked up and the first thing I saw was this big gold trident on his chest. And I had no idea what that was at the time. I mean, of course, my father was in the Navy, but he had never talked about the SEALs. You know, he, he was a pilot. So, you know, the individual proceeded to talk to me and he said, hey, you know, the reason I stopped you is because you kind of look like you don't really know what you want to do. And so my first thought was like, who the hell is this guy? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was kind of funny and I'm, you know, actually kind of was a little bit offended by it, right? But it was just immaturity, right? At that time I was young and, and he said, you know, so he started to talk to me. I told him kind of my dilemma and he finished the conversation by saying, well, do you want to do the hardest thing you'll ever do in your life? And I said, well, what's that? So he told me that he told me about the SEAL program. And I would say probably 10, 15 minutes in the conversation. I just knew I, that's what I want, what I wanted to do. I had to go do it. But for me, it was a little challenging to some extent um, because my, even though my father was a flight surgeon, my mom was a very traditional Chinese woman. And so she was culturally raised with a belief that your children are either doctors or lawyers, they're nothing. And so, so I think part of the reason I went down the path of medicine was a little bit of nurturing from my mom to push me in my, in that direction, but also because, you know, I, somewhat live vicariously through my father's practice. So I, you know, the thing with the decision is I knew what I wanted to do, but I also knew that if I went home and told my mother I was going to drop out of college and go to the SEAL team, that that would be a problem. So I remember that day distinctly because I was trying to think of what to say that would maybe convince her otherwise, even though I knew in my head, nothing was going to convince her otherwise. She was just really set in her ways. So I went home that day and I said, you know, mom, I'm dropping out of college and I'm going to go in the military. And I, you know, I knew there was no logic in trying to explain her what I wanted to do because she wouldn't understand it. And so I remember when I told her, she said, well, you know, if you drop out of college uh, and join the military, you're no longer my son. And I remember I said, okay, well, I guess I'm no longer your son because I'm joining the military. 
And so we, it's kind of funny. So that's when I went and lived with my dad for a while, because I would say that there was kind of a parting of the way between myself and my mother. And I don't want to make her out to be a bad person because I, I also understand that the influences in, in individuals' lives, especially the culture that you were raised in, influence who you are and how you act and behave. And so I knew that was just her. But at the end of the day, I, what I couldn't rationalize in my mind was how a parent can't support a child's dreams, right? And so I had a lot of animosity toward her. Uh, because of it. But at the end of the day, I knew I wanted to go in the SEAL themes. And so that's what I did. And fortunate for me, I mean, at that time, I joined the military. They just started a program called the Die Fair program. So I was the very first class to go through boot camp, and it was called the Die Fair 800 class. And what it was, was a guaranteed program the Navy just started. So if you pass the ASFABs, you did the physical fitness pass the physical fitness requirements. And you had to do that three times. So pre-boot camp, during boot camp, and then in A school. So as long as you pass those, you know, maintain those set of requirements, you were guaranteed uh, a slot in BUDS. The condition was you had to go to A school first. So I went to Gunner's Mate A school. Uh, so uh, missile systems and gun systems on ships. And, and then from there, I went right to BUDS, got my shot. And, you know, the, the deal was if I didn't make it through bud, uh, BUDS, I had to commit four years to whatever duty assignment the Navy wanted to sign me in. But it, at that point, I knew that's what I wanted to do and I was going to make it. So I, I didn't quite care about the, you know, the con- consequences of the decision. Right. So, so you, you get to Coronado and tell us about that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because you see a lot of, you know, I, I wasn't a big kid. You know, I, when I finished, you know, I probably went into buds. I was training a lot, but I mean, graduating high school, I was like a 150 pound kid. I was a skinny kid. And then of course I started training and weightlifting to get in shape and running a lot for buds. So I think when I went to buds, I was about 170, 180 pounds. But what's really interesting is going through boot camp, this die fair program where it's comprised of buds candidates, EOD. There are a lot of guys in there that were just monsters, right? Guys in really good shape. And and it, it's kind of funny. I didn't know what to expect. But, you know, typically when you see guys like this, you're like, holy shit. I mean, these guys are like <laughs> buds material. But, you know, the thing you we were quickly, probably the first to DOR. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because so you, you just don't know. I mean, are you yeah. like you, you start you start questioning yourself. Are you really yeah. in good enough shape? Have you trained hard yeah. enough? Because, you know, the reality is perception sometimes is reality. And when you see other, you know, that's, that's, that's kind of how you, how you determine whether or not you're at the caliber, I think that you want to be, it's by how you perceive others and then in how that reflects and and then how you perceive yourself. So in other words, you're always trying to measure up and you, you want some type of measuring stick. So I wasn't really sure because I I really didn't know what to expect with a SEAL program. I knew it was going to be hard. And I saw, you know, a caliber of individuals that are just, you know, professional athletes, people in really good shape. And so you start to question, you know, do you, do you really have what it takes? And, 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 and then that really kind of turns into what do I need to do to be stronger, harder and faster? So I started training harder, even though I was in buds, I was still going to the gym working out or if I, you know, if I felt like my swimming wasn't uh, good enough. I'd go down to the pool right after buds at the end of the day and start swimming just to make sure I could make it. Um, 
And then the funny thing is, once you start going through buds, you quickly realize that a lot of these guys that you you look at and you're going, my God, these guys are monsters, are the first guys that quit. Mm-hmm. So, so it's kind of very interesting. So you, you soon realize that it, you know, the perception isn't reality, right? That it isn't about the physical shape of an individual. It really about is the mental tenacity that that individual has. It's the desire, the passion to want to be there and to really accomplish something that, you know, they're, they're there for a reason. So when you get to buds, how, how long is buds? Uh, I'm sure it's six, six months, I think. Yeah, learn. So when you, but. And I think because a lot of people are, you know, as we like to joke around with you guys, you know, you go to Bud's, you get a movie or a book deal, you know, giving you guys a hard time, right? But, um, but you know, none of the movies I I think really accurately depict, like, I think it makes it seem like, hey, you day one, you start Hell Week, right? And that's not it, right? No, it's things have changed since I've been there. The structure's a little bit different, but when I went through we had what was called a fourth phase and it's like a, they, it's like a pre-training phase. It's still buds and of course there are physical standards you have to meet or you can still get kicked out. But the idea between – the idea behind fourth phase is to get you up to some level of con, uh, consistent or standard performance. So when you start first phase that – you know, the, the physical aspect is not the hindrance to you being successful. Um, it's physically demanding for sure. We had, a, you know, we had a class proctor. It was really interesting. His name was uh, Mike Jaco and he's just a hard as nail guy. And we had some, what I'll say early on leadership problems with our class and what that caused was conflict between some of the enlisted officer members. And I remember this one day that uh, the class proctor was so mad that the class just wasn't functioning as a team that he had pretty much said, pick out a bunch of guys that you feel are kind of problematic. And it wasn't really that the guys are problematic, it's the guys who were having internal conflict. And and I remember it was, I got picked. And, and just because me and my OIC at that time didn't see eye to eye, which is fine because we were actually, believe it or not, we're good friends right now. Um, but the reason I bring that up is because that, that day was probably the hardest thing I'd ever done. Um, the objective of the class proctor was to get us to quit. And so he, you know, buds is Monday through Friday other than hell week and I remember we finished Friday and he made us stay out there on the beach and he was drilling us without any medics or anything else on the beach Saturday and Sunday all day long, almost 24 hours. And that was eye-opening to me because I think that's where the, my mental capacity really increased dramatically because I, you know, it pushed me to a point that I didn't think was possible. And I remember another thing that was interesting. And I'd always heard of like somebody pushing themselves so hard that they, there's this uh, term, it's called uh, capillary bleeding. I know there's a medical term for it, but I just can't remember what it is. But essentially what happens is you, you push your mentally push yourself so hard that the stress is so impossibly surreal on your body that the capillaries in your pores start exploding and your pores start actually seeping blood. And I remember we were, it was, we, we had to grab two 35 pound sandbags and we had to do 
squats all the way down to the earth lunges all the way down to the demo pits, which was a mile and a half. And then on a mile and a half back, back, we had to grab a buddy by the legs and drag him in the sand. And while we're doing this, I mean, a couple guys had quit. While we're doing this, I, I look over to my left and I see this individual and his shirt is orange. I mean, completely orange. And it was because of the thing that I was telling you, his capillary bleeding. His, he was under so much duress that his body was actually bleeding and his shirt had turned completely orange. I mean, he looked like a carrot. And then, you know, shortly after that, I think it was like the uh, phase, fourth phase OIC found out about what was going on and basically said, you know, hey, canceled this whole evolution. And then we rejoined the class. And it was pretty funny because, of course, after my OIC at the time saw what had happened, he, he was just like, dude, I'm sorry. I, you know, I fucked up. I should have never fucking done anything like that. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I think that event itself had a huge impact on, um, you know, my ability to be able to succeed in buds. And I, I actually really enjoyed it to be honest with you, even though it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done and buds. Yeah. Buds is difficult. I, I would say that it's physically demanding, um, fourth phase through first phase. And some of that is just because you're just not really up to that caliber of person yet mentally and physically. And so you're a lot of it is just trying to get up to that point, pushing yourself harder, taking your perceived limitations and understanding those are just perceptions and reality is actually here, but you're really down here. So you got to keep stepping up. So physically, I mean, I was always a good runner. Um, I was a good swimmer. Um, and so the, the physical challenges weren't tough for me. It was more of just the mental mind games, the cold water. I didn't have a problem with cold water, but it was definitely tough, you know, because I had never pushed myself to the point. Past and Coronado is a special fuck you yeah, cold yeah. too. I don't think a lot of people, you'll find this funny. When my daughter was like, I don't know, like 12 or 13, I think. And her birthday's on January 8th, but- MLK holiday is always on a Monday, like like a weekend later after her birthday. So it was a three day weekend. Always, so we'd always take a little trip somewhere. Yeah, and we'd gone out to San Diego, and uh, and I was like, hey, let's let's go over to Coronado. You know, I just I, I wanted you know, just show you know, I knew we weren't going to get on the base or yeah. anything, but I was just like, I want her to see you know, like hey, you know, like we when we landed, we went to MCRD. I was like, this is what changed. This is what started the change for everything for me, you know, because mm. I dropped out of high school at 17 and mm. I was never a bad kid. I was just a really high energy kid that needed that channeled and turns out the Marine Corps was the perfect place <laughs> for that, right? Yeah. Uh, like my dad, he was, you know, did tours in Vietnam, you know, and, and I remember when I showed up with a recruiter at 17 and my dad, I said, hey, this guy says you got to sign for me because I'm not old enough. And he goes, man, I'll sign that damn thing in blood. He goes, You're, he's your fucking problem now, man. <laughs> he goes, I got tired of kicking his ass six months ago, right? And then uh, so I go to boot camp, you know, and go, you know, do, do all that. So then, so we, we leave San Diego, go over, go over to the bridge, get over there. And, uh, and you know, she sees the drink and all the waves coming in. And she's like, oh, can we go get in the ocean? I was like, yeah, let's go do that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so anyhow, I was like, but here's the deal. Once we go in, we stay in. Yeah. And we go running in, and she comes flying out like a Tomahawk <laughs> missile. She goes, that's cold. I was like, you have no fucking idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was a winter class. So we, we, 
winter classes typically have a higher attrition rate just because of the cold water. Um, You know, it took me a little bit, a little bit of time to adjust to the cold water. But once you do, uh, like one thing I notice now is that's really carried over my life. I have like very high body temperature all the time. Like cold weather doesn't bother me. And I think that's a lot just, just from that kind of your body training in those environments. But, you know, it's, and again, hell week, uh, hell week's tough, but it's one of those things that everybody knows if you make it to Wednesday night, you're going to, at that point, you're just kind of like a. So tell the audience more about that. What what, what do you mean by that? Because yeah. they hear hell week, but I don't think they really, a lot of people don't understand because they're fascinated with the community, but yeah. they don't really understand that. So yeah. how does it start and then what happens and then get to Wednesday and go, this yeah, is Yeah. So you're, um, so breakout is the start of hell week. You're, you're basically in the barracks. You're you know how week's going to happen. You just don't know the specific time. So in reality, you're supposed to be sleeping. But like anything else, when your mind's running 100 miles, Anxiety, nobody just, sleeps, right? So you start hearing explosions. They set off like uh, improvised mo- uh, um, simulated mortars. Yeah. M60 start going off. And then that's the official start of Hell Week. So first thing you do is you go to the grinder. You do PT. Constantly in and out of the ocean, sitting in the ocean. Um, and this is 24-7 at this point. So there's no rest. And really, the I'd say the first 24 hours are probably the toughest because it's you're so – you're really at that precipice of fatigue, right? And you, you're just – you've never experienced it. And so Sensory overload kind of – Yeah, sensory yeah. overload, physical overload, your body swelling, um, you know, because, and they do these little things where they will give you a 10-minute break or 15-minute break. But – and you think it's a great idea, but it's the worst thing because as soon as you stop moving, everything starts swelling up. Yep. And – but I do – I think they do it for medical reasons. And, you know, and of course you get – I think it's – three or four meals a day to keep up the, the calorie intake. Um, so it's just constant evolutions, 24-7 for the first two days. And then the second day is, I think it's second evening, is probably one of the crappiest events. They call it the steer, steel pier. And so you're, it's, I don't know, it's middle of the night. And then they bring you over the NAB side. I, th- I think you run over there. And then you're basically in a t-shirt and shorts and they lay you out in these steel piers and it's just a metal floating dock. And this is a middle of winter and the instructors take these water hoses with that shoot this fine mist and you're just laying there for hours and they're just shooting this fine mist over everybody's body. And it's actually kind of funny when you think about it now, because what it looks like is a fishing boat that just got came from the ocean and dumped a bunch of fish onto the pier because <laughs> everybody's so cold your bodies are like just flopping on this thing and you hear this constant like this tone of bodies flapping on the on the pier because everybody's so cold they're trembling so bad yeah and uh and you know i remember laying there and it was like oh, going oh my god this is like the worst thing i've ever done and then of course they tell you to get up and jump in the water and you're like oh fuck this i don't want to get that <laughs> Um, but the funny thing is it was actually warmer in the water than it was on the damn steel pier. So that, that's kind of like one milestone is the steel pier. Um, and then I think, I think that night as well, the second night is also when they, 
they play these little mind games with you. So one of the things we had to do is we had to go in a classroom and then we had to write a story. And and it, it's funny as hell because by the second or maybe this is the third third evening, because by that point you're starting, you're you're kind of going in and out of hallucinogen like hallucinatory states, like you're in and out of sleeping. And it's the weirdest thing because you could be standing there and just having a conversation, but then all of a sudden things are just fading in and out. And anyway, we had to write the story. And so they they put like, I think it was they put a banana on your desk and you gotta write a story about the banana. And and it was really funny. I mean, you're you're you basically start writing a story, a few sentences, and then you fall asleep. And then what happens is you're dreaming. And so then you wake up and you realize you have you're supposed to be writing a story, but you, what you start doing is you start writing about something you're dreaming about, and then you fall asleep again. And so it's like this th- paper; it makes no sense. And then on top of that, there's these chicken scratches going all the way down the paper <laughs> for every time you're falling asleep. And it was the funniest thing ever because I mean, after I graduated with buds, I got to read the paper, and it, it it was literally like a combination of dreams, like nonsensical bullshit, like. Yeah. Nothing about a banana, but that, yeah, I mean, that was the whole exercise. And then, but then once you get toward like Wednesday evening, that's the point where I, I, I just, you're, it's really not you anymore. Your body's just doing its own thing. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they say if you, if you make it to Wednesday night, you, I mean, you have a very high, high chance of making it through the remainder of buds. Cause you're just like a zombie at that point. You just do anything anybody tells you. We did this thing called Around the World where you got a row of the boats around Coronado Island. And I had my boat crew, everything from seeing instructors walking on water. So, I mean, we had episodes where we're paddling and then everybody falls asleep. And then all of a sudden, one of our one of the guys in our boat starts screaming that the instructor's standing on the water next to the boat and he's yelling at us to start paddling. <laughs> but it was – it, it was a really interesting experience. And then, you know, of course you get, you recover from, from hell week and, you know, really the rest of phase one is kind of a wind down. You're, you're doing light physical activity to re, re, recover. Um, and then next major milestones die phase. Um, so I think that's the, the physic physically challenging parts or buds kind of ends really at die phase. Beyond dive phase, it's really about all the different tests you have to take on diving, gas yeah. uh, gas laws and embolism and stuff like that, medical science. And as long as you pass those, you're, you'll make it through second phase. But pool comp's really the only challenging part. And that's, I think, the third week of second phase, third or fourth week. And that's where they, they call it pool competency test. And that's where they throw you in uh, the pool with a dive rig. And they tie your, well, they simulate a a systemic chain of failures. And you have to, basically what you have to do is you have to think rationally. You have to be calm. You don't panic. And what they want to see you doing is thinking through the problem and solving the problem while you're underwater. I think you're on a nine-foot pool. So Mm -hmm. you're at the bottom of the tank. You Structure, rip your mask off, rip your hose out of your mouth, start tying some knots, and you got to stay under there and, and untie, uh, un- solve the problem and get your rig back on. And the final, the final thing is a catastrophic failure. And so with a catastrophic failure, I'd say you have to put about a minute 
well, minute to two minutes in the problem, like ideally about a minute, minute 30, worst case scenario, two minutes into solving that problem. And then if you can't solve it, you have to give a conscious signal to the instructor that that's an imminent failure. And then they basically have you place your rig on the ground and they tap you in the back of the head and say, okay, you can go up. So that's the final like thing. Um, mine, you know, so it was kind of funny. The first time I went through pool comp, I failed it. Uh, I would say that that's something I wasn't proficient at was diving. I mean, it just felt extremely foreign to me to have something in my mouth and a mask I'd never dove before. So first time I failed it and then I got put into like, uh, they do some additional training with you, working with your rig and stuff like that. And so the second time I went through, I didn't want to fail it. And so when I got to my catastrophic failure, uh, I remember like it was just not, I knew I just could not. I, I was not going to get undone, but I was like, fuck it. You know, I, you know, what if this was a real diving operation? So I remember I reached down there and I stood on my rig with my feet and I just, with all my might, with both hands, just ripped the manifold off. <laughs> so it'd start shooting out air. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like down there breathing on this thing. And I remember the instructor, I mean, he's just coming back, just slamming me on the back of the head. And I'm sitting here going, no, I'm okay, I'm okay, you know. <laughs> but of course, he was telling me, like, dude, you're done. Get the fuck up to the surface, right? <laughs> so he really starts pummeling me. And so finally, I'm like, okay, I guess that means I have to go up. And so, but, you know, it, it was pretty funny because yeah. he was kind of pissed. But at the same time, he was kind of laughing about it and said, hey, you know, listen, nice job. He said, but, you know, you, you were kind of supposed to, you know, know that was a failure and then just kind of go through the, the process. So, yeah. but. How, how many guys you start with and finish? Uh, I, I think our class started with 170 something and I want to say eight or nine originals graduated and we had probably another seven to nine individuals that were roll-ins from the, from the other class. So total around 14 or 15. Yeah. So some of the roll-ins are guys that, you know, you get an injury get hurt. in the yeah. next class or they fail in evolution they go through like a remediation type thing. But the original guys, it was a small numbers. And that's typically synonymous with winter classes. You, you typically have lower graduation rates. Yeah. So if somebody uh, – with, with you guys, can somebody come back and try again later they, down the road or – They can. I, I don't know what it's like now because it's a little bit different. We've, they, they have their own SO rating. When I went through, you could, but you, what you had to do is you had to go – so if you did make it through, like in my case, if I was a die fair and I didn't make it through, then I'd have to go to fleet for I think it's two or three years before you, you – and then you would have to get a sign off from whoever your CO was at that time to go back and try. Then we had a guy – uh, in my buds class that I can't remember his name. I think his name was Purdy, but that was his third attempt. So he had gone through and quit twice. And then he went through a third time. And I, I think he quit the third time as well, but they're, yeah, they're guys that are just persistent. will you know, yeah. try over and over and over again. But I, I think they're, I'm not sure the exact time frame, but it's about two or three years before you can try again. Would you, would you agree that, you know, coming from communities like this is there's just a, a difference in your brain housing group than everybody else? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, or as I like to joke around is having the natural ability to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Right. 
and uh, and having the ability to hone in on the word of acceptance, yeah. right? Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Just like, yeah. hey, but you know, it, matter of fact, I can't I can't remember who I was talking to. Maybe it was a year, or two years ago that I thought summed it up great. Right? So look, take a piece of sandpaper, run across your knuckles. Anybody can do that once, mm-hmm. but how many people can do it five times, 20 times, 30 times, 50 times, and just be relentless and not stop and just live in that full acceptance, right? Yeah, I, I it, it's definitely a different class of people. And I, I, I like to think of it as that there are kind of two kind of groups of people, I think, in the special operations communities, right? There are those who just have a level of maturity that's unprecedented at a certain point in their life. And and because of that, they have that mental strength, right? And then there are those who are the risk takers, right? Who, like for me, I didn't have that level of maturity in high school. And quite frankly, I I don't think I would have been as successful if I had gone the medical route that I originally planned because I wasn't really a mature kid at that time. I was, quite frankly, a little bit of a troublemaker. And so I think that the teams, what the teams gave me was a level of maturity uh, to be successful. Because I, when I look back, I think I could have gone one of two ways. I could have gone off the deep end and been one of those people that's just a problem in society. But I chose a career that put me on the right path, that told me, taught me a sense of selflessness, a sense of responsibility. And that's the great thing about, you know, especially the special operations community, unlike any other force in the world is that if you can demonstrate that maturity comes increasing levels of responsibility up to the point where they will give you that responsibility of somebody's life and tell me what other career would ever trust somebody enough to do something like that so it's very very rare i mean that's in in you know it's interesting because you're you're just you're 16 17 18 year old kid Next thing you know, you're responsible for an entire department or you're responsible for putting guys out of an airplane and making sure you're not putting them over a mountain range and killing everybody. You're responsible for running a range evolution where you're doing live fire. I mean, I mean, think of I can't think of a single corporate organization that would ever put somebody that young in a position like that. So I really valued it. I mean, I learned a lot. Um, you know, I, I love the professional development track. You know, the fact that with every level of increased responsibility, there was some level of training that you had to go through. So you're always learning more. And then the caliber of individuals that you're working with is that's the other thing. It's no slouching, right? Yeah. In the community, it doesn't matter if you've made it in. You show up every day, man. Show up every day. Yeah. There are no yeah. days off. Mm-hmm. It is show up every day. And, you know, and then one of the things too is, you know, when I think with our military experience, right, is it's really hard to articulate to other individuals what that word trust mm-hmm. means, right? And um, like it, me and Eric talk, you just sit there and laugh about it all the time, you know, and we just sit there and go, man, it's about trust. As you know, as a matter of fact, we have a saying, which is trust is the currency of business, not money. Right. And then you get out, right. You get out of the military and you realize, oh my God, like that does not exist out here in, in this world. And I think that's why, you know, 
guys like you and I, we, 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 we end up down the entrepreneur route because virtually we're unemployable, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we yeah, were, we're, yeah. we're, to call it problematic, it's just we just sit there and look at other people and go, man, there's a lot of self-interest here or people that will screw somebody to get there or whatever else. And you just kind of sit there and go, man, I just – I want to go – we'll never be able to replicate something like that ever again out here, but we can create environments around it that are pretty – Pretty damn close, right? Yeah, and it's it, you know something that's interesting. You say that because I when I first got out, I did I worked for three Fortune two hundred and fifty companies, and at one point I was managing an entire department of a few hundred people, and it was interesting because um, there were a lot of people who really valued my expertise, and at some point people were saying, you know, listen, you could be the CEO of this company, but I had others that culturally said, well, you're just not a culture fit. And it's interesting because we used to do these surveys, real performance surveys. And, you know, when I took over my department, I had an underperforming department. But within a year, our department metrics were way beyond any other department's standards. And and they didn't like that because it was there was too much division, right? And And I found that really interesting. Like why, you know, if you see an organization that, that, the metrics are great. Why wouldn't you want to try to duplicate that to the rest of your organization? And they don't. I mean, that's the unfortunate thing is there are a lot of corporate cultures where they talk about high performance, but high performance doesn't exist. Mm-hmm. And they feel like because they don't understand it, that that is something that's contrary to their culture. And threatening. And threatening. Yeah. And so I, I, I mean, I was, I was doing really well, making a lot of money, corporate world, but that's kind of when I decided, you know, listen, I, I need to start my own company and create my own culture because I don't want to be part of a culture that I don't believe in. Yeah. And, and that's, and that's the thing is culture is paramount. That, that is, that's what we had in special operations. That's what makes us thrive. Um, and, and I think at the end of the day, that's what makes us successful. And to your point about trust, I think that, that is the one thing that unfortunately inevitably leads to our failure as entrepreneurs is that we have too much trust. And I've seen that a lot in, you know, especially the special operations community, guys getting out and trusting people who they shouldn't have trusted. And now next thing you know, their businesses are falling apart. I mean, I just had this conversation three days ago with a buddy of mine who's got a company in Virginia that he had started a business and he had he and his partner had actually effectively grown that business to what it was. And the two investors basically created another shell company and removed them from it and took all the assets. And so I had, and I said, you know, I finally told him, I said, listen, don't walk away from this. I said, you're getting screwed over. Uh, I said, what they're doing is illegal um, and you need to go get legal counsel because what they're, what, what they're doing is they shouldn't be doing this to you. And so he finally won in court. But at the end of the day, I, that I've heard that story hundreds of times, Yeah, hundreds of times. And, and it's not that I don't think you, you can't trust people, but I think what's different is that that model goes from inherently trust to a model of trust, but verify. Yeah. Right. So now I, I tend to keep my circle small and the people I interact with uh, are 90% of the time, it's an introduction through somebody I know. And if, if it isn't an introduction through somebody I know, I usually won't talk to the folks anymore. Yeah. We have a, we have a saying, uh, you know, in our, you know, with 
with my fund and all the other companies we built to support the fund and, you know, doing all the different stuff is verify, verify, verify. Mm -hmm. Right. And matter of fact, um, one of the guys that works, uh, works with me, James Peterson, just this guy is an amazing sales guy. He was uh, when I was telling you about O3 invasion. Uh, and, uh, I mean, literally he could go to Guantanamo Bay, open up a cell where Al Qaeda is being waterboarded 15 times a day and sell them water. Yeah. Like this guy, it's just, it's just ridiculous, but he just goes so fast that it's like, Hey, look, don't be a one trick pony where you're really good at sales, but you forget all the other stuff that's got to come with this. Right. And so I'd been just racking my brain like, man, how do I, how do I get this guy to just realize, verify, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so a couple of weeks ago, it hit me, and I, and I called him, and I was like, "Hey!" So they had called, you know, when he when they were in the invasion, man, they were just man, they were just it was just some some nasty town fighting, right? And they called in an A ten, and the A ten came in and didn't do their checks. Well, I can't remember what it's called, right? You know, yeah, they come yeah. in and swoop yeah. in, verify, and it came in and just mowed half his unit, right? Oof just horrible. And I said, Hey, that, that, that's pretty emotionally evoking thing every time you think about that. And he goes, yeah. And so I said, would that have happened that day? If he had verified with the FO came in and did his sweep and verified, and then came in on that third verification to say, yep, that's the enemy. Let me mow him down. Yeah. And he goes, yeah. And I said, and so now he's got a term that he used fast mover. So before he gets ready to jump at something, he tells himself fast mover to remember something that just goes, hey, slow down, verify, 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 because we have a responsibility to our investors to make sure that this stuff is not wrong. And we're not talking rocket science, right? I mean, look, we can verify this stuff very, very quickly. And then also, like you were talking about, verify who who the people you're you're surrounded with, right? And because if not – a non-verification might not happen today of the consequences, but it'll happen at the most inconvenient and most pivotal time yeah. right, of something. It's yeah. kind of like your air conditioner never goes out in the winter. It goes out when it's a 110 degrees and 30, yeah. 30 million percent swap ass humidity in Texas, yeah. right? Yeah. So we yeah. had, um, yeah, and it's, uh, you're, you're absolutely on point there. And, you know, there's a couple of things I learned through, through business. One is, there's good money and there's bad money. Um, most of the money out there that people are willing to invest in your company is bad money. Um, and we, we learned that lesson a lot. And so we're very selective now on who we do business and who we bring in as a partner. It has to be a mutual benefit for everybody. And then the other one on trust that we learned is I think it was about the third year we were in business. We had just moved our operation here to Texas and and of course, we had somewhat of a biased view. I'll say that we tend to favor veteran, um, veteran-run businesses, and I've learned that that's not the best way to go, right? Because it doesn't matter really at the end of the day whether you're veteran, non-veteran. It's you just have to have that trust verify method and get to know who you're working with. Well, we ended up jumping into business with these two guys that were Air Force vets, and they had just purchased a manufacturing facility and they wanted to be the company that manufactured our product. And so, of course, we had this false trust and we said, okay, we didn't really do our due diligence on the guys. We didn't really know who they were. I mean, they were Air Force veterans, but about six, like three months into it, they screwed us over. So we had manufactured our own ingredients and then through another, our other entity 
and we would provide the ingredients for them, for them to manufacture the product. Well, they weren't making enough margin. And so what they were doing was they started procuring these ingredients from China, were very low quality ingredients, and they were making our product with it. And I remember I had just, just real bad feeling this one day. And so rather than, because what happens is as soon as I receive the inventory, I'm now accountable for it. And I remember just having this bad feeling. And so I went down to the facility and I said, listen, I, I, I want to do some Q&A on the product. And we did. And it was horrible. Um, it was $70,000 of product. And that was all the money that Jeff and I had at the time. And so this was literally, we only had one manufacturer. They had just taken, you know, we had a down payment of 50%. We had just paid for something that we knew we couldn't sell. But and we ended up having to walk away from that deal. Um, and it turned into a, a big thing. We ended up getting these guys shut down because of what they were doing and they lost their business. But at the end of the day, they almost put us out of business because we, I mean, and, and I'm not going to blame them. At the end of the day, it was our fault. We didn't do our own due diligence and we should have. So that, that's a, that's an important <laughs> thing is due diligence, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, the way I kind of look at it and we, you know, and like when we're talking about, deals is like hey so kind of like going through buds the navy's doing their due diligence on you mm -hmm. to make sure you're going to be an effective team member yeah right and so we have that same obligation because it, it's if you don't then you're right at the end of the day right is the the person in the or as i, I what my team hears me say it's the biggest liar in the fucking rooms and one in the mirror yeah right and unless you're going to have an honest conversation with yourself, then look, you 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 need to get your 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 your, your shit straight. And uh, so you're absolutely right, you know, because it does look. And you're not in control of what somebody else's behaviors are. You're only in control of your own behaviors, and your behaviors should be, hey, well, you know, we need to make sure that we check this stuff to make sure it's mm -hmm. it's on point and it's doing what it's doing, right? Yeah, and 99 percent of the time, I would argue that if you look back at a decision you made for whatever reason you could have made a, another decision had you done things differently. And, yeah. and there's always a situation where you could have done things differently and you should have. And so I do believe that the majority of that accountability really falls on you as an individual mm -hmm. most of the time. Absolutely. So you leave the Fortune 200 companies and you you decide to open up your own business. What's the first business you open up here? So I had a couple ventures going on at that time. Um, it's kind of a, a really interesting path to get to where I'm at. I, I've kind of always felt like I had kind of had generally fallen into, excuse me, different opportunities. And all these things were kind of like building on top of one another to ultimately help me be successful in where I'm at today. So when I left, um, when I was working at the Fortune 250 companies, I was deeply immersed into information technology. So it was everything from installing, configuring, building out systems to building out entire network operation centers to managing cybersecurity programs. So at one point, I was a subject matter expert for cybersecurity in, in the U United States. Uh, was held, I was a subject matter expert for John McCain and Obama's cybersecurity bill. Um, so I had kind of built up a reputation there, but decided that's not the career path I want to pursue. So during that time frame, I then got a job offer to work at a mergers and acquisitions firm. And I'll give you a quick background there. Um, 
I came across this opportunity because I was actually on a boat with my buddy who just bought this brand new 50-foot yacht and we were going out to Catalina Island. And the way it works is it's first come, first serve in a mooring. And so we get there kind of late in the afternoon. All the moorings were filled up because everybody was a beautiful day. And there's this one mooring next to this boat that's like an 80-foot yacht, a brand new yacht. And as we're approaching to tie up to this mooring, you can tell this guy's going to be a problem, right? He's standing on the bow of his boat, just just eagle eye everything we're doing. And as soon as we get up, he's yelling like, yo, you know, make sure you don't hit my boat, blah, 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 and, and tie up on this side. And so everybody was tied on the starboard side. So mm-hmm. when you're tied on the same side, what happens is you do that because when the wind blows, so none of the boats, all the boats are blowing in tandem, right? And no boats are blowing into each other. Well, this guy felt that, our boat was inferior to his, even though my, you know, is a buddy's. My buddy's boat was a Tierra, so it's a, a almost a two million dollar boat. But according to his standards, it was it was a, a you know it was a rowboat. So he didn't want us anywhere near him, and so he's telling us to tie up on the opposite side. And finally, you know, my buddy's just kind of listening to this dude because you know he's got a bigger boat. And I I finally just I looked at my buddy and I'm like, dude, do not listen to this guy. And let's just tie up because we're sitting there for a half an hour struggling, trying to get this thing tied. And I finally said, do not listen to this guy. And so I turned around this guy and I said, excuse me, I appreciate your input, but we don't need your help. Just leave us alone. And so we tied up and this guy storms off. So next morning I'm up on the bow of the boat or the, the aft end of the boat, drinking coffee, doing some push-ups, And this guy comes out and starts talking. He goes, can I talk to you? And I said, no, I don't, I don't really particularly want to talk to you. And he said, well, I, I apologize. And so next thing you know, this guy was a former, find out this guy's the former CEO of Westinghouse Communications, big company, billionaire. And he said, I'm sorry, you're right. Love to get to know you. So we started talking and then he said, why don't you come up to LA one day? And I, you know, cause I, I, I was at that time, I was also talking to him about a software technology that I wanted to, to create. And he says, well, why don't you, bring a pitch stack up and, and I'm interested in it. So I go up to Wilshire and, and he's, you know, he's basically got a mergers and acquisitions film where the responsibility of the company is to acquire and acquire technologies and build global companies. Um, and so I, I went there, pitched to him and he said, listen, I didn't bring you up here to invest in your company. I brought you up here because I wanted to hire you to run my, my, um, my investment, um, firm. And I'm thinking at the end of the day, I'm like, I, I have zero experience in this and I, I don't know the first thing about M&A. And he said, don't worry about it. I'll teach you. And so I spent about a year and a half and that was my job, uh, senior vice president of global acquisitions. And it was my job to acquire technologies, look at the different regulations, understand those regulations, and if needed, draft legislation to support the, you know, support those businesses. And I learned a lot. I learned, I mean, the funny thing was my perspective of business at that time was here. But then you work with somebody who's working at this massive global scale. You start seeing things you would have never considered. And that was a great experience. But the funny thing was I had access to four or five different companies, the finances and everything. But there was just this one entity that he kind of kept close to his pocket that started to raise some red flags, right? Because there was money moving between the different entities. And I remember I said, well, 
why do I have access to all this information, but not here? And he says, hey, you know, don't worry about it. Uh, as a matter of fact, I decided I'm going to give you 10% equity and I'm going to, you know, pay you a million dollar salary a year. And I'm thinking the first, the funny thing is the first thought popped in my head was if it's too good to be true, it has to be. We used to say that in Thailand. Yeah. If she looks too good to be true, she's got a yeah. dick. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, mm. So I, you know, I, something wasn't right. My instincts were firing and I, and I remember I said, give me a week. I need to think about this. And I remember I called him back and said, I'm leaving. I can't do this anymore. Well, about two months later, uh, he gets federally indicted. So this whole other company he had was an aircraft maintenance company that he was basically writing false contracts for all the major airlines to the sum of $380 million. So Luckily, I had trusted my instinct and I had walked away from that. And shortly after he got indicted, they seized all his assets and everything else. Um, and he went to jail. Uh, so that taught me my first lesson about doing your due diligence on people. And then shortly after that, I started my first company with my brother and sister, which is a clothing brand out of New York. Um, and then um, I started doing some business in Africa. So we got involved with the diamond trade. Um, and that happened to be with another spec ops guy who originally had good intentions, uh, but that turned south pretty quickly. We had a great deal going. We, we were uh, acquiring raw cut diamonds, and then we were selling them in the open market. It would have been a very lucrative deal, but uh, my partner got greedy, and he wanted to go do the side deal. And we told him not to. The sum, of, sum, and the amount of money was too great. So we, you know, we said we need to start small until we build out our process and understand the players and understand the environment. And then once we do, we start scaling. And he came across what he thought was a good deal. He he stole the investors that we had and convinced them that he had a better deal. Um, so he. One of the things that we never do is we never bring the investors overseas with us. You know, it's we we handle the money. So he made two mistakes. He brought the investor over, convinced them to do a deal outside of our company, and they go over to Africa, believing that this royal family was going to give them access to these, you know, these amazing un, uh, raw stones. And they were they were topaz. Mm. They're fake. So he was doing everything he could to try to recover the deal. And so some random guy came along and said, you know what? I've got a, so many kilos of gold. You'll make a few million dollars on the deal. And so now he was trying to recover the deal and realized he screwed up and started coming back to me and said, Alex, I need some help here. I need some money. This is a great deal. I'll give you 60% of it. And I, I looked at him. I said, no. I said, because you you – You've completely disrupted the supply chain. There's no chain of custody. You don't know who you're working with. And what you're trying to do is recover a deal that's already gone sour. And I said, you just need to walk away from it. And he didn't. He convinced the investor to put more money into it. So come to find out that the guy who was selling him the gold was only 50% owner of the gold. And he was selling it to him at 80% below, uh, no, 80%. 20% below market. So there was only a 20% margin. profit margin there. Yeah. Well, so he gets the gold to the airport because it's supposed to go to Dubai. And they fly out to Dubai. The gold doesn't show up. They call back. Customs had seized it because the other individual who was 50% owner wanted his gold back. 
And so now the other owner came back and said, well, hey, you know what? I'll do a deal with you too. So, you know, give me more money and then we can make this deal happen. Well, the fortunate realities at that point was gold was going for $33,000 a kilo at that point at market price. So all in, they would have been at about 31 or 32,000 per kilo. So there was no deal. So essentially he lost, you know, he lost all the money. We, we had had to shut down the operation because we at that point didn't have any investors and we were doing some deals with some big family names. And, and of course that caused a problem with my company. And so we had this large <coughs> family doing an investigation on us because they had lost their money. And I had to go back and say, this, you guys did this deal. This is the paperwork. This is with him, not me. And they did their whole investigation and found that what I was saying was, you know, right. And they apologized for it and everything else. But at the end of the day, I just didn't want to get back in that business anymore. So we shut it down and it was just, there were too many, too many um, bad players and everywhere you turn, you just, everybody's trying to rip you off. And so, you know, if I ever did something like that again, I would do it with a, you know, a, a hand-built team, a trusted team, but I would never approach it the same way I did. But so I, you know, we ended, we shut that one down and then Jeff and I decided we wanted to start Opti Labs. Um, so we got that company going back in 2014 and, and what is Op2 Labs? So Op2 Labs, we sell under two brands, Prote Gold and Frog Fuel. So Prote Gold is our medical supplementation. Frog Fuel is our human performance. So we currently distribute the product to over 4,000 medical facilities internationally. We're in four countries, probably being about seven to 12 countries by the end of the year. But, you know, Fortune 5000 company, past two years in a row, made Fort Worth's fastest growing company, top 30 companies here in Fort Worth. Yeah, because you, you, I mean, this is recent that you moved here to Fort mm -hmm. Worth because yep. you were out in San Diego still, right? Well, we had, so I was in San Diego. We had the corporate offices here in Texas and we, but we had our warehouse in Mississippi. So within this year, we decided to, to shut down and consolidate everything. So now we, we just finished building our new 60,000 square foot facility. So now it's our office spaces. Congratulations on that, by the way. Yeah, thanks. That's no, that's no small feat when you're building a business and especially, well, in an era, in a post-pandemic world where space is a enormous yeah. commodity yeah. or no – an enormous demand with very, very little supply of right yeah, now, yeah. right? Yeah, we were delayed about five five months, and that that caused some problems in itself because technically, until the the actual office spaces got built, we didn't have an operating permit, so we had a facility sitting there. We had already shut down our facility in Mississippi, but you know, luckily, um, you know, when we worked with. Uh, city of Fort Worth, you know, they were willing to give us nice enough to actually give us a temporary operating permit so that we could actually resume shipping operations because there were so many delays with construction. So we were fortunate that, you know, we were working with, you know, a great city that, that, you know, was, was um, there to really help business rather than be a detriment to business. So that's great. And then, um, you know, that one's doing really well. Um, you know, our, our international growth is growing, doing, doing a lot of new deals internationally. Um, online sales are doing great. And, you know, this year we're really focused on the medical side. And then on top of that, we, you know, I just bought a patent from a guy two years ago and um, gave that company to my wife. 
So she's actually just finished her production of her products, and now she goes live here in February. What kind of products are those? So she actually sells a um, it's a it's a child support pillow for a car, uh, car seat. So basically, it affixes to the straps on a car seat, and it supports. It's like a little U shaped thing that supports the uh, infant's head in a car seat when they're driving. Because parents typically know when your child is mm-hmm. sleeping in a car, their head is going back and forth. And then also, if you get in a front impact uh, crash, that that child's head has no support. And so the patent we have is for any front front facing pillow um, that affixes the car seat. So past basically year and a half, my wife has been working with her team on, you know, developing the product and manufacturing it and doing packaging. And they just finished the packaging and it just looks amazing. So I think she's going to do really well. You know, it's funny. Um, I think it's, oh, man, maybe this was, I think it was prior to the pandemic. You know, I, I, time, you know, eludes me nowadays, you know, like we were joking around about. Um, but I was walking through an Albertsons. And uh, and they had all these boxes of fraud fuel. Mm-hmm. And I'm always, you know, especially, you know, community guys where, you know, you know, fellow vets and whatnot. I always want to support the other businesses. So I go up to the counter and I bought like all five boxes <laughs> of this stuff. Right. The lady was like, man, you must really like this stuff. And I said, hell, I haven't even tried it yet. And she was like, well, shouldn't you try it before you buy it? And I said, well, a friend of mine owns a company. I think I sent you a photo of it or yeah. something like that. <laughs> I was just like. You know, because, you know, she was just like, you've never tried it? And I was like, no. And then I was down at the Fort Worth Club, and I was just handing it out to everybody, like, hey, here you go. And the nutritionist comes running out. She's like, you, you know what you're handing out yet? You know, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, hey, it's a friend of mine's company. I'm just, you know, supporting yeah. the company. And it was just kind of kind of funny. But it was cool, though, because, you know, especially in the, you know, supplements industry, I mean, it's, there's a lot of competition in that space, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Heavily, heavily diluted. That when you walk through and you see a friend's product, you know, it's like, that's pretty, that's pretty damn cool. Yeah. So if Albertson's on Alton Road had to do a big, you know, resupply thing, well, you, that was because of me because I bought every God, damn one. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for support. Yeah, absolutely. And then, uh, so, so EO, right. And it was kind of, it, it, that's how I found out that you were in Texas actually was uh, because when somebody's going to, you know, apply for a chapter, they email everybody and right. say, Hey, and, and I was just like, ah, I was like, man, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I hadn't even realized cause I've been so busy with stuff. I hadn't, a lot of people think I'm on so that it's me on social media, but really it's a, my college roommates, uh, younger brother. So me online is really a five foot 10 black guy out of Nebraska. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I hadn't been on social media and I've just been cranking things out. And then I saw that and I was like, hell yeah, Alex is here. Yeah. And then, uh, so man, good, good on you. Maybe being, being out here, how do you like living out in Texas so far? Oh, I love it. It's, yeah. it's, um, it, it was a breath of fresh air. It really was. Yeah. Um, y- you know, it's, it, it coming from California where unfortunately I think the political landscape is just, it's not an environment you want to run a business. It's just too in your face. And, there's a lot of division and, you know, you here you come to a state where you soon realize that the state genuinely cares about business success. Um, I, I, I think I was really amazed by the, you know, the, not just the city, but the state planning efforts. Um, you know, everything that's going on here with the infrastructure investments and 
how quickly this city or state is growing. It's amazing. The legislation, you know, I was telling a story about, you know, I, I remember, you know, if you go into a DMV at California, it's, you know, it's one of the worst experiences ever, right? You don't fill out your paperwork, right? They're going to tell you to get out of line and go make a new appointment. So we didn't know what to expect when we came here. So my wife and I went into the DMV. We, we, we kind of had to figure out how things worked here. Like, in California, DMV is one entity, but here you've got like Department of Licensing and tags and whatever else. And they're all kind of like weird names. But I remember going in and we were, we were, tra- you were doing our vehicle registration and I, I, I didn't have all the, didn't know what paperwork to fill out. One, because I was a vet and I wasn't sure which ones I needed. And I'm dreading walking up thinking, okay, I just wasted half an hour here. I'm going to get kicked out of line. But we walk up and the lady looks at it and I said, sorry, I, I just didn't know what to fill out. She's like, don't worry about it. She's just give it to me. So she sat down there and she just said, okay, just give me all your information. And this is a form you need. This is a form you need. Genuinely helpful, right? Really wanted to help us. And then, you know, she said, are you a veteran? Yep. Okay. Here's a book of all the different veteran benefits here in Texas. And she said, are you a business owner? Yep. Here's a book of all the different business benefits of Texas. And I'm thinking, wow, I've never seen anything like that in California. Right. So that's my first experience. My second experience, we go down a grocery store and we didn't realize we went to the store that had this bag free policy. Um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's a like an organic store. And we didn't know, so we didn't have our bags. And we're thinking, great, we just bought all these things. And how do you get them out to the car? Well, you know, again, the ladies working the register said, let me shut down the register for a second. I'll give you a hand. I'm going to go get some boxes in the back. And so we had just this subsequent series of experience of people just wanting to go out of of their way to really help you. And I've noticed that on the business side as well. So it's it's so different here. Um, I really enjoy Texas because people here, they don't care about your religious affiliations or your political affiliations. They, they just want to treat you like people. And, and if you want help with something, there's hundreds of people that are available that are, and willing to help you out. So I, I do think that a lot of our business success and our company growth has a lot to do with the fact that we are here in Texas. Yeah. And it's, and you know, that's one, of, you know, you, you, you hear places go, Oh yeah, we, we, we like vets. And then you're like, okay, this is quickly bullshit. Right. Yeah. And then, but here it's a, it, it's authentic. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, that's how I was able to get Cowtown Warriors up and going in 2013, which is the foundation I built and the whole board is made of Marines. So that means, you know, nobody can read and write, but we throw a hell of a party. Or it's like one of the guys put, it, he goes, he goes, we're a drinking club with a charity problem. Right. And, uh, but a hundred percent of the money raised goes to wounded, Ill, wounded, ill and injured vets. Right. Mm-hmm. And we're coming up on the eighth annual event in the end of February. And we've had Dunford, you know, former kind of the Marine Corps, Neller. Uh, we didn't have one last year because of the cold COVID thing, but then we had Rick Perry, wow. you know, so we had some really impressive people that have come Gordon England, you know, cause yeah. he was secretary of the Navy whenever you yeah. and I were in. And, uh, and it was just, you know, just really cool how, people come together and just really supportive of it. And, uh, and that's, and that's, that was another thing that led me to my transition because when I got out, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's, the other branches like to make fun of Marines. Like, it's like, Hey, you're getting out of the Marines. So are you going to do gay porn or are you going to be a cop? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so I chose being a cop. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I did that is I, I did that and I was putting myself through school 
So I was working midnights from eight at night to six in the morning patrol. I go home, shit, shower, shave, go to, go to the junior college, you know, from seven till one, two, three o'clock because classes never line up. Right. You're never back to back. And I did that for two years. TCU gave me a full academic scholarship. So I was like, hell yeah. Yeah. Went there. Um, you know, I already spoke Romanian. I already spoke Mandarin. And so I learned to speak Spanish while I was there and especially having a lot of experience overseas, you know, so they had some job offers like, Hey, you're, you know, you speak multiple languages, you've, you're comfortable or as guys like you and I like yeah. to joke around is we're comfortable with being uncomfortable. Right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but a lot of yeah. people don't understand. They're like, yeah. well, I'm comfortable with being uncomfortable. You know, you don't know the first fucking thing about being uncomfortable. <laughs> you just need to shut up. Uh, and then, but the night, of my graduation on December 16th, 2006, my partner was killed in the line of duty. Ugh. Hit my drunk driver. So I felt obligated to stay. You know, because when I became a cop, I, I never disliked it, but I just never loved it either. You know, it was, mm-hmm. it was a job for me. So now I felt obligated. And then, um, so I got on the promotion track and they'd come up and said, hey, we, you know, we, we, we think you're deputy chief material one day, but we need you to get a graduate degree. And kind of like I was sitting here thinking about this when you were talking about taking that company and the analytics. So when I first promoted and went to the detective's office, I went to general assignments unit. And it's just all it is is just case management because you're getting there's like 30 detectives in that office and you're getting like 10, 15 cases a day. There's just no way you're ever going to solve them. Right. It's just there's just too much. Well, you know, say guys like you and I are wired different. Like, mm-hmm. And then like after the first two months, you know, the other detectives kind of corner me and say, hey, 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 you, you, need, you need pump brakes. And I was like, why? They were like, your clearance rate is stupid. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing a great job, right? And they were like, no, you're making the rest of us look really bad, right? You know, they just didn't like it. People are threatened by things. Yeah. And then as it turns out, the violent sex crimes unit needed a Spanish translator detective. So I was like, yeah, I'll go do that. And so forth. So now I was... Now I, I promoted again and uh, they said, hey, but we want you to get a graduate degree. And I just didn't want to go do like everybody else did, get a criminal justice degree. Mm-hmm. So I went and I signed up for TCU's executive MBA. And then in my first class weekend, because it was every other weekend, Friday, Saturday from eight to five. And you're in there with other executives from like Bell and BNSF and other business owners and whatnot. And in my first class weekend, I was like, why the hell am I a cop? You know, and then just how veteran friendly, you know, I knew Fort Worth was. And then I kind of made the same mistake is there was a retired, there was an alumni who was a retired Marine Corps colonel. He was an F-18 pilot guy. You know, it was pretty, pretty impressive, you know, fighter, fighter jockey. And uh, he, I went and did a couple of consulting gigs for him. And then he was like, hey, you want to come over and do this full time? I was like, yeah, you know, and it was, they promised a culture that ultimately only lasted about 12 months. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, somebody can only hold up a curtain rod for so long before their arms get tired and drop it. And then I, I left that company, not because of anything, because I was always, you know, it was like, you know, the same thing, hide the ball. Right. Mm -hmm. You know? So as soon as I would start asking good questions, it was like, Hey, we're going to move you over to asset management. Okay. And then, you know, get over there and I started asking, hey, we're going to move you over to investor relations. You know, so, you know, the whole move, move the people around that ask good questions. And then finally, that just the, 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 the culture was just toxic. And I was like, this is not, this is not what I signed yeah. up for. Right. And I, 
and I left, I just said, hey, matter of fact, I was just so wanted to be gone that I just relinquished all my equity and said, hey, look, you're going to have it all. I don't care. I just, this is not what I signed up for. Right. It's not worth it. No, it's not worth it. So that was in April of 2016. And then in, I'll never forget, it was just a couple months later, my wife held up the front page of the Star-Telegram that that guy and the CFO indicted by the SEC. And I was like, and as soon as I saw that, I called my attorney and I just said, hey, I know that if the SEC comes knocking on your door, they're knocking on everybody's door. And I want to be prepared so $100,000 in lawyer's fees and four years later for them to all go, oh, wow, you never knew anything. And I'm like, yeah, thanks for the four years of stress and the hundred grand that I had to spend on that. You know, but I lost everything because of the lawsuits and everything else. Like I lost everything. I'm, I'll never forget. I was sitting there in my kitchen at my big fancy million dollar house looking at my $300 electric bill going, how the fuck am I going to pay this? And if I can't pay a $300 electric bill, that's the least of my concerns. Yeah. You know, but you know, is my wife came home and I was just like, Hey, this is, this is a bad situation. We're going to need to sell the house. We're going to, we're, we're, we're going to need to start figuring out some stuff. And, uh, and my wife, bless her heart. She, 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 she I tell her every day all the time. I'm like, I would have left me. Right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I fucked everything up here. And then she was like, man, your heart's always in the right place. She goes, you just like you were talking about mm-hmm. your judgment and trusting people is sometimes just a little too much yeah. because we want, we're trying to, I, I feel like we're trying to recapture that, that, that yeah. try, like we want it and thrive for it. And then after you get deemed pretty hard, then you're like, whoa, 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 hold yeah. on. I'm going to be real careful about this. And then, um, so she had sold her real estate company to Sotheby's a year earlier. And she agreed as part of the deal that she would stay on and manage that office for mm-hmm. two years. And she was a year into managing she was still listing and selling and she just goes, Hey, um, why don't you get a real estate license and help me? And I was like, I don't want anything to do with real estate. And she was like, I'm pretty sure that you won't, you need to do anything I ask you to do. And I'm like, yeah, that's a fair statement. <laughs> so I get licensed, uh, in the very end of September of 16. And in my first 90 days, I, I closed like a million dollars worth of deals. And I didn't think it was a big deal. And she was like, wow, two more million. And you would have been a top producer. And I was like, what? Mm-hmm. I was like, how? And 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 and, and so she kind of brings me, and I look at her, and I said, um, "In twenty four months, we're going to be number one in this company." And she's like, "Well, how are we going to do that?" And I said, "We're going to create great processes because it's really funny. Like when you're talking about going, you know, through buds, is it's a lot of you know the spec ops community is yeah, you you, you got to have some, you know, you got to have the mental fortitude, and naturally you got to be able to run, jump, and swim. If you can't run, sure, jump, and swim, sure. you're not going to be able to." do but a lot of it too is learning mechanics of things, mm-hmm. right? It's like, hey, there's a better way, more efficient way to do right. this. And so I was like, so we're going to put the mechanics in place. And I said, and we're going to build, we're going to, if there's anything I know about the environment I came from, I know how to build effective teams, mm-hmm. right? And then so we worked two years later in 2018, we were number one, 2019, number one, 2020, number one. And then now not only number one in 2021, but they were coming out with the numbers for all of Ford. There's like 4,000 agents in Fort mm-hmm. Worth or something like that. And number six wow. out of all the production. And, uh, and people ask me, you go, how, how do you, how do you do this? And I said, build effective teams, have processes. And we have two core values with span group. The first core value is what I call the value exchange. Mm-hmm. I must trust you and you must trust me because one side is lopsided, lopsided. Somebody's in the convincing business. 
I don't have the time and energy to convince, and I don't have the time and energy yeah. to be convinced. So as long as we got that value exchange, then the second core value is the value proposition, which is your money will always be more important than my money. Yeah. And as long as I treat it that way, trust is a currency of business, then my money will always follow respecting your money. And then naturally that's evolved into the real estate fund I got and then maintenance company, the landscaping company and all these other companies doing the same thing, building effective teams yeah. and all those to yeah. come together where as a, as a joke that I even made with a, a buddy of mine I was on the podcast is I said, look, I can build you the best landscape money can buy, but I'm not going to get you yard of the month. I'm not that detailed, mm -hmm. right? But I'm really scary good at finding the people that are that will get you that yard of the month. And then bringing it in and being able to do that. And so kind of when that whole evolution went by, you know, at that other company, um, and then now it was building it, it was just nice to have that autonomy again, right? Because that's the one thing, like, you know, in, in the seals, you got autonomy, right? Yeah. Like, hey, these, these are A players that are ready to go out here and get it. Yeah, you individual know? unit autonomy. Right. Yeah, and and I mean that's the key. You're you're absolutely right. It's about having that core process in place. But you know, and the other thing too is the adaptability and the agility. You know, it's just yeah. just because it works now doesn't mean it's going to work in the future. You know, and you always have to be. I mean, COVID is the perfect example of that if you continued to run your business pre-COVID, mm. um, then you're out of business. Yeah, and unfortunately, I mean, especially when you look at a lot of restaurants out there that just said, you know, we're going to weather the storm. Um, and just wait to open up, they're all gone. Um, yep. The ones that adapted and started doing online t order taking like DoorDash and stuff like that, they they all had record years. Um, you know, and it's, I see it a lot in our, our company. I, you know, coming from an environment of higher performance, you're always questioning whether or not you're doing things the right way. You know, there's the hard way, which is to just blood and sweat and time into getting something down, head down, focus, and you do it. And then there's the smart way, which is how do I reproduce this in a way that, you know, I, I can complete this task without ever, you know, without, without ever putting, having to put an effort into it. Yeah. And we do that a lot. I mean, we look a lot of our internal process arc in our company and we say, okay, you know, the, the thing that I hate the most and I learned in large corporate environments is that, 50 to 60% of an employee's time is actually used to perform administrative tasks. So you're hiring an expert to be able to perform a job, but yet you're burdening them with these administrative tasks. And so culturally, that's one of the things that I've always communicated with my team is that I want to leverage you for your expertise, not to perform administrative tasks. So if you see something um, that either can be automated, it's a routine task, Let's bring those things forward. Let's identify if there exists a technology to automate those things. Or if it's a business process, it's not working as we expect it to. Let's fix the business process. And so we have these continual process improvement, process evaluation things that we do at our company to do those things. And, you know, I want to get to the point where 5% of my employees' time is used for administrative tasks. And 95% is to leverage their expertise to have that individual unit autonomy to be able to go get a job done. Yeah. And move the needle. Right. Yep. So let's go back to 20 year old self. Right. Yep. And there's a million things we'd want to go back and tell 20 year old self. But if there was a window of opportunity to go back and there was only one thing you were like, Hey, look, either do or don't do this. 
and 20 year old self, 20 year old Alex was going to listen. What would that be that you would say? I don't know if there's anything, you know, it's kind of like the question of um, if you could go back in time, what would you change? Um, and, and for me, I don't think I would have changed anything. Um, of course, you know, is entrepreneurs and business owners were, you know, I'm, I'm going on 50, right? You kind of look back and said, I wish I could have been here earlier stage of my life. But I also realized that the whole reason why I'm here to begin with is because of the things that I experienced. Um, I don't believe that life is really about a series of obstacles or challenges. I believe that life is really about experiences and those experiences are what defines you as an individual. Yeah. 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 Sound, sound, sound things, you know, it's, uh, I was talking about it on one of the episodes, uh, yesterday with my buddy, you know, it was just like, you know, he was just kind of laughing. He goes, dude, you, it's like, even going back to when I lost everything in 2016, right. People were like, Oh, I bet you wish you could change that. And I said, the only thing that I regretted out of that was that my family went through pain. Mm-hmm. Right. But it helped make me who I am today. And he was laughing. He was like, dude, you've been so forward of everything always. He goes, you, you're so fast. You don't have time to look back. And I was like, yeah, because if I, yeah. if I look back, I'm slower or if I'm still going just as fast, I'm going to get into an accident. So it's just, you just, those, those, that journey is what makes us who we are now. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. uh, so people want to, learn more about your business and everything else where do they go how do they find you what's uh where yeah so www.op2labs.com so that's op number two labs.com um of course we're on linkedin all the different social sites our two brands are frog fuel and protein gold so protegold.com and frogfuel.com that's awesome. Well, Alex, thanks for coming in, brother. Well, yeah, thank hold you, on a second. If, if, if y'all missed it, go to myexperiencerealtor.com, click on podcasts, scroll down, click on Alex. You'll be able to get all that information in case you didn't get a chance to write that down. And Alex, thanks for coming yeah, in. Yeah, thanks, brother. Appreciate, Appreciate it. it.